Chris Webster here, co-founder of the APN. I just wanted to thank you for supporting archaeological education and outreach. Please share this post across your socials so more can learn about our shared past. On to the episode. The Dirt Podcast is brought to you with support from the Archaeology Division of the American Anthropological Association. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And happy birthday to us. Happy birthday to us. Yay. It's been a whole this year. Is, this has been one whole year. This is episode 52. Boy, that, that worked out really nicely. <laughs> I know. I know. And, and, and we before we get started. Oh, boy. And we did something wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say thank you to our listeners for for um, <laughs> becoming such an awesome community and listening to us. We're astounded that we get to yell into microphones and people enjoy it. So thank you. Uh, but yeah, we, we goofed. First of all, we have both a correction and a shout out. So shout out first. In one? Is this a, this is a... It is. It's a correction. A, cum shout out. It's a correct out. <laughs> A showrex. Nope. Okay. No. 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 (laughs) Absolutely not. So, first of all, thank you to Andrea, or possibly Andrea, for becoming a Patreon supporter of the podcast. You're awesome. If you want to help us keep doing what we do at the Dirt, you listeners can do so starting at just a dollar a month at Patreon.com/slash The Dirt Podcast. And Andrea, or Andrea. Or a third version that I can't think of sent us this fact, which is relevant to our episode on the ancient Indus Valley slash Harappan civilizations. So, in that episode, we mentioned something about um, when bits of glaciers break off and form smaller glaciers, they are called calves. And that's actually not entirely correct. So, um, but this it is, is pretty cute. It's really cute. And it's not totally wrong, but it's more nuanced than that. So here's the thing. Um, <laughs> calving is when a piece of a glacial toe, which is the end of a glacial terminal. So like if there's a glacier that trails down a valley, that kind of little icy finger, the end of that breaks off. And then that piece becomes an iceberg. And so an iceberg is a floating island of ice a bit of ice too small to be classified as an island is called a bergy bit, which is like the legit scientific term for that, apparently. So thank you for that piece of information and for your support, Andrea. We're very pleased to have you as a member of our Patreon family. So are you sure? Are you sure Andrea, Andrea isn't lying to us because that is wild. Yeah. I mean, I'm pretty sure. (laughs) Okay. Well, all right. Sure. Trust, but verify. So, <laughs> so today. That was a good thing I was on, talking about glaciers, huh? Yeah, because remember those? Oh. <laughs> today we're diving into a topic that is extremely important to us and hopefully to you, our fellow Earth dwellers. Um, and that is climate change. So there's a lot of misinformation and naysaying and bluster and straight up ignorance about this topic. And so we thought we'd take a look at what we know about the history of Earth's climate, how we know it, and what it means for our future. Yeah. So let's start with the very basics. What even is climate? Real. (laughs) Yes. Real and changing. (laughs) Um, Okay. Great. Good night, everybody. (laughs) Okay, so climate is defined as the average state of everyday weather conditions over a period of 30 years, which I didn't know. I didn't know that that was the the bracket, you know? Um, I mean, it can be at different scales, but I didn't realize that it was cut up into 30-year chunks, which is interesting. Climate is measured by assessing patterns of variation in temperature, humidity, atmospheric pressure, wind, precipitation, atmospheric particle count and other meteorological variables in a given region over long periods of time. Climate differs from weather in that weather only describes the short-term, like day-to-day conditions of these variables in a given region. 
The climate of a location is affected by its latitude, its terrain, and altitude, as well as nearby water bodies and their currents. So, so climate, not same, same weather, correct. right? Correct. Are yes. you listening, Congress? <laughs> they don't listen to this. Are you kidding? God, I, I know. <laughs> 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 Write your congressman. Tell them to listen to the dirt. Congress people. Write your congress people. Tell them to listen to the dirt. And now, some fun facts. Fact number one. The Earth is very old. Our planet is around 4.5 billion with a B years old. That's old. Fact number two, Earth's global climate has changed rather abruptly in the past. In the case of ice advances and retreats, the demise of the dinosaurs, the Permo-Triassic extinction, and the PETM, or the Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum, it is certainly possible for Earth's climate to again change abruptly. And fact three, when climates change... Species distributions change. Remember those dinosaurs? Ocean levels change. Shorelines shift. And evidence of all of these things are in the geological and archaeological record. So here is an excerpt from an article in PNAS. Panas. The geologic record contains a treasure trove of, quote, alternative Earths, end quote. What? That's not what? what? No. What? No. <laughs> I know. I knew you would do this. And no. Ah! Yes. What and what the that multiverse. means. <laughs> and what that means in that incredibly irresponsible choice of phrase, although they did put it in quotes, is not anything to do with the multiverse. <laughs> it's just different climate phases at points when Earth was very different from what it looks like now. So in that sense, there were alternative Earths, but it's the same Earth. So relax everyone so every time it snows here there's another earth yep on every, which it didn't i mean every day that there's another earth i mean if we're gonna every time every time you wake up it's a new day it's a new earth okay so i mean would that that were true as we will see in yeah. the rest of this episode <laughs> yeah i know no so these alternative earths these are ones with like geologic records though and so those records allow scientists to study how the various components of the earth's systems respond to a range of climatic forcings so that's Climatic forcings means um, sig significant change in distribution of plant and animal species and uh, other planetary changes based on climate shift. So these past examples illustrate how ecosystems function, and often they provide constraints for predicting the magnitude and impact of future climate change. So that's really important. Multiple independent methods for reconstructing ancient levels of atmospheric carbon dioxide have been developed over the past two decades. So these include things like, and I will do my best to translate, um, the distribution of stomatal pores in fossil leaves. So that just means, so the stomata on leaves are the, the parts that release oxygen into the atmosphere. And so uh, they, they are also responsible for, uh, yes, thank you, for absorbing CO2. And so if you look at the distribution of stomata on fossil plant leaves, you can figure out how much of a, uh, a carbon dioxide sink these plants would have been, how much they were able to absorb. Um, you can also look at uh, carbonate minerals in fossil soils. You can look at um, carbon isotopes in marine phytoplankton, and you can look at marine carbonate precipitate. So all of these basically are records of ancient levels of carbon dioxide, and typically um, they generally correlate very well with independent records of temperature like um, oxygen isotope Informa uh, data from deep sea cores or ice cores from Greenland. But basically, over the past 450 million years, all this data tells us, carbon dioxide was low when there were extensive long-lived ice sheets. And then when those ice sheets retracted and the temperature became uh, warmer, carbon dioxide was moderately high at other times. Basically, the okay. proportions of these isotopes, carbon and oxygen and nitrogen, all of that can tell us about things like the temperature at the time, the ocean temperature at a particular time, or sea levels and how those shifted and rose and fell over the past, you know, few million years, which is pretty awesome. That is pretty awesome. Yeah. Okay. So we're talking about rising, falling, ebbing, flowing. Ice. You know. Yeah, so this is so we get on to the topic of glacial maximums and minimums, maxima and minima. Um, so we've all heard of an ice age, 
thanks to the animated movie franchise, the script says. Uh, Amber but, doesn't watch as many animated movies as I do, but I rest did, assured. I did, I did watch Ice Age at like youth group or something, and I was like, this is inaccurate. Yeah, um, well, you and I both <laughs> did that. But just like the animated movie franchise, there have actually been five or six major Ice Ages. <laughs> I don't um, actually know how many Ice Age movies there have been. Th- there's, there's like a lot. Okay. <laughs> like the next Fast and Furious. <laughs> yes. Two Ice, two. You know what? Nope. It's just not going to work. Go ahead. Too Fast, Too Frozen? No. Nope. Too Frozen too Warm. Two is coming too out too warm too warm too in okay we'll get it um, in, post. in the history of earth over the past three billion years so the first like billion and a half years it was we just don't have he, a record that far back yeah yeah so but past three billion years five or six major ice ages so within ice ages there exist periods of more severe glacial conditions and more temperate conditions referred to as glacial periods and interglacial periods respectively yeah can i can i explain for one second so within an ice age that's just a general pattern of overall drier cooler temperatures but then within that you can have periods where the the uh, northern and southern ice sheets are larger or smaller it it varies so it's an ice age isn't this big monolithic thing it's a period of generally a trend of cooler temperatures but with fluctuation in there because ice ages can last a very long time yeah yeah and um so You've got these glacial periods and interglacial periods. And which do you think we are in, Anna? I can read the script in front of me, so I know the answer. All right, everybody write down your guesses. Okay, you got them? If you said we are currently in the middle of a glacial period, you were right. You get a gold star. Great. Give it to yourself. We don't have any. Well, wait, or give us stars Um, on (laughs) Apple Podcasts. Okay, keep going. Although... We we may yeah we are in a glacial period, but it is less intense now than it was twenty thousand years ago. But this is not the only period of glaciation in Earth's history. There have been many in the distant past, and but really overall, uh, the Earth has been warm enough to be ice free for more of the time than it has been cold enough to be glaciated. Which is one of the points that um, climate change deniers will harp on. Yeah. To be like, actually, it's colder now than it has been in the past. Be like, okay, also, the Earth was covered in volcanoes for, like, a few, like, million years where there's, like, nothing living on it. So, like, really, don't use that argument. Do okay. Do not use that argument. So, the last glacial maximum... LGM was the most recent time during the last glacial period when ice sheets were at their greatest extent. You might be thinking of the one I'm thinking of when we talk about this. So this was when vast ice sheets covered much of North America, Northern Europe, and Northern Asia. The ice sheets profoundly affected Earth's climate by causing drought, desertification, and a large drop in sea levels. Sea levels dropped because everything froze up in those glaciers. All the water was held in ice. Yeah. The ice sheets reached their maximum coverage about 26,500 years ago. And... So this is the ice age that people talk about yep, when that people one. talk about this generally. It's that one. The one so, that the movies are about. Yes. Well, really, I think they're about this point, deglaciation. So it should be called deglaciation. Um, <laughs> De-icing uh, which, age. Which commenced in the Northern Hemisphere around 19,000 years ago. Um, and in Antarctica about 14,500 years ago, consistent with of evidence for an abrupt rise in sea level at about 14 and a half thousand years ago. Yeah. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But first, let's talk about when it was all cold and stuff, Anna. <laughs> Specifically when it was all cold and there were Neanderthals in Europe, because you all That's know my I jam. Meant. And I said, and stuff. And stuff, comma, Anna, specifically. Um, so this is yet more material from Panas um, as of... 2018. This is that's when this was published. <laughs> so, climate change may have played a more important role in the extinction of Neanderthals than previously believed. Oh, believed. <laughs> I can't believe it. Oh boy. <laughs> climate change may have played a more important role in the extinction of Neanderthals than previously believed, according to a new study published in the Proceedings of Natural Academy of Sciences. 
a team of researchers from a number of European and American research institutions, including Northumbria University, Newcastle, have produced detailed new natural records from stalagmites that highlight changes in the European climate more than 40,000 years ago. The research team found several cold periods that coincide with the timings of a near-complete absence of archaeological artifacts from Neanderthals, suggesting that climate change had a significant impact on the long-term survival of Neanderthal populations. So, how do you read time from cave teeth? Stalagmites, and that's the ones on the ground, stalactites are the ones that hang from the ceiling, they grow They in... hang tight. They hang the stalagmites tight. Stalagmites They might, might reach the ceiling one day. They might. Yeah, so um, stalagmites and stalactites, actually both, grow in thin layers each year as dissolved minerals precipitate out of water trickling through the cave systems. And so any change in local temperature alters the chemical composition of those minerals. And the layers, therefore, preserve a natural archive of climate change over many thousands of years. So you can section a stalagmite much like you would section a, a tree to do dendrochronology, and you can read the layers and it will tell you about the temperatures from year to year. So what are these? They're called speleo speleothems. Speleothems, yeah. Speleothems, yeah. Cave thems. They cave thems. Mm-hmm. So thems. the researchers examined stalagmites in two Romanian caves, which revealed more detailed records of climate change in continental Europe than had previously been available. The layers of the stalagmites showed a series of prolonged, extreme cold and excessively dry conditions in Europe between 44,000 and 40,000 years ago. They highlight a cycle of temperatures gradually cooling, staying very cold for centuries to millennia, and then warming again very abruptly. The researchers compared these paleoclimate records with archaeological records of Neanderthal artifacts and found a correlation between the cold periods, which are known as stadials, and an absence of Neanderthal tools. This likely means that the Neanderthal population greatly reduced during the cold periods, suggesting that climate change played a role in their decline. Dr. Vasile Ersek is co-author of the study and a senior lecturer in physical geography in Northumbria University's Department of Geography and Environmental Sciences. And so he explained, quote, for many years, we have wondered what could have caused the demise of the Neanderthals. Were they pushed over the edge by the arrival of modern humans or were other factors involved? Our study suggests that climate change may have had an important role in Neanderthal extinction. So the researchers believe that modern humans survived these cold stadial periods because they were better adapted to their environment than the Neanderthals. But put a quick pin in that. We'll come back to that. Neanderthals were very skilled hunters and had learned how to control fire, but they had a less diverse diet than modern humans, living largely on meat from the animals they hunted. Okay. Another pin. What other meat? Wait, what? Like meat of the animals they hunted, like what versus oh, as opposed meat to of the animals they like bought at, at like Safeway, the animals that they did postmates for and had delivered to their cave. Um, oh my god! Right, bite squad. Am I right? These food sources would naturally become <laughs> scarce during colder periods, making the Neanderthals more vulnerable to rapid environmental oh, change. Same thing with postmates. <laughs> Not sponsored. In comparison, modern humans had incorporated fish and plants into their diet alongside meat. Okay, I have so many pins in this right now. Which supplemented their food intake and potentially enabled their survival. All right, listen. It's true that Neanderthals were very well adapted for cold, at least in terms of their anatomy. They had very broad faces and big nasal and chest cavities that researchers think were to help warm up the air that they breathed in during very, very cold periods. Um, also, their bodies were stockier and more muscular than anatomically modern humans, meaning that they had less surface area that heat could escape from. So yeah, maybe their populations decreased during those stadials, but also if the climate warmed up a lot very abruptly, um, then they would all of a sudden be at a disadvantage because then they would be adapted for a cold period that wasn't happening anymore. And if that happened around uh, 40 to 45,000 years ago, that's when modern humans were first making their way into Western Europe. And so if they were also in competition with humans for resources, that would have all been a disadvantage. So I'm not exactly sure about how I feel about um, Dr. Ersik's claims, uh, because also there are indications that the Neanderthal diet wasn't as monolithically meaty as as we think it was, or we had thought it was. Um, in certain areas, it seems like, yeah, they were eating a more diverse diet. But in superglacial periods, when um, mostly the plant material that would have been available during 
more temperate climates wasn't there and it was you know, covered by ice and snow and like tundra, um, yeah, their diet was probably pretty limited to the animals that they hunted. Um, so it's, it's a, I think a more complex issue than this article makes it out to be, but it's also very, very cool that we can get such a high resolution, um, picture of the paleo climate from, from these, um, stalagmites. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, it's not just cold places that were affected by this. I think that's um, a, a misconception that a lot of people have about ice ages is that it's, it's global. Yeah. So it was, so while there were things going on that were like super cold, super icy, <laughs> so chilly. Um, up in the Northern hemisphere and the Southern hemisphere, there was something else going on. And so as we've, we've talked about this, um, we talked about this on our episode um, where we talked to Grace Beach mm -hmm. um, about um, island Southeast Asia and some of the humans that were there and some of the like non-homo sapiens people that were there. Hominins. Little guys. Yeah. Some hominins that were there. Um, and so we have a good sense that um, modern humans have been living in islands Southeast Asia. So this is like, you know, the Philippines and Indonesia, Indonesia yeah. um, the the islands off the coast of Southeast Asia. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to think of like the names of the region. Yep. Island Southeast Asia. I now see why they're using ICEA. Yeah. Um, I, I see that. a reason for that also. We've been in island Southeast Asia for the past 50,000 years or so, but what have those 50,000 years looked like, demographically speaking? Well, good thing we've got science. So this Yay, is taken science. from <laughs> this is taken from the um, Journal of Molecular Biology and Evolution. Wow. So this is like, uh, yeah, this is like so far from... <laughs> This it's is in, so it's far in from a different, my wheelhouse. It's a different county like, <laughs> from your wheelhouse. Yeah, I, yeah. I like. It's a long distance call from my wheelhouse, but yeah. so I'm gonna I'm gonna pull from the abstract here. Um, but I'll include. Oh my god! Uh, I'll include the the article itself in our show notes so that if you are a molecular biologist yourself, help us. Have at it. Um, but the researchers talk about how. Largely, we deal a lot with linguistic studies looking at um, sort of deep time for the population in an island Southeast Asia, which is kind of shallow for deep time, um, being about the last 6,000 years and like taking particular attention to a proposed Neolithic dispersal from China and Taiwan into island Southeast Asia. Now, this study uses complete mitochondrial DNA mtDNA, genome sequencing to spotlight some earlier processes that clearly had a major role in the demographic history of the region, but have hitherto been unrecognized. Where to for? Yeah. And so um, <laughs> the, this, this, it's um, an international team, um, largely from of folks from um, Leeds in the UK and um, an institution in Taiwan. Mm -hmm. um, they looked at haplogroup E, which is an important <laughs> component of mtDNA diversity in the region and how it evolved in situ over the last 35,000 years and expanded dramatically throughout island Southeast Asia around the beginning of the Holocene at the time when the ancient continent of Sunderland was being broken up into the present day archipelago by rising sea levels. So what this study indicates is that Folks were all over in island Southeast Asia, and they were able to get around rather freely. But then deglaciation started happening right, up in the northern hemisphere, 40, largely in the ago. northern hemisphere. Yeah, um, uh, somewhere between fifteen and seven thousand years ago, the sea levels rose to the point and uh, separated these all of these islands. That then, um, oh my God. Uh, separated all these islands that then developed diversity among themselves because right, so they, they no longer were able to move freely. Separate populations. So, yeah, separate, like, totally separate populations genetically. And then later, as researchers see, uh, like those researchers that deal with like linguistic studies, mm -hmm. um, it starts to take 
other like other forms of diversity beyond just biological diversity. Right. So, so cultural it's a really diversity. cool study that shows. Yeah. Um, it's a really cool study that shows that just because people weren't like freezing their buns off um, <laughs> south of the equator, they still were affected by um, glacial maximums and deglaciation. Yeah. Climate change is global. Yeah. Yes. Um, so, can, I, can I mention something first before we move on? I just want to... Yeah, um, yeah, I'm going to get Calypso's ball out from under the couch while you mention it. <laughs> um, I just wanted to specify that mitochondrial DNA is different from the DNA that we all have in our uh, in the nucleus of our cells. So that's the DNA that gets passed on that sort of makes you you. Your mitochondrial DNA is... As it might sound like, it's in your mitochondria, which are also in your cells. But mitochondrial DNA is only passed down by mothers, right? It only comes from your mom. And so, except for a case that's like one in a bajillion. But um, so because that DNA is not changed in any way, uh, because when you, uh, when an egg and a sperm combine and their DNA combines, you get half from mom and half from dad. This is just coming down from one side of the family. And so it doesn't change from generation to generation, except for what happens with mutation. So that's why you can use mitochondrial DNA to kind of count back and see how long it's been since certain genetic changes occurred, which is why you can look at these populations and, and see when they started becoming different genetically. Great. Yeah. Thank you. Now that we've done some molecular biology let's go back to straight up climate phew okay yeah so now we're going to talk about the younger dryas and the older dampus (laughs) (laughs) nerd so okay so i've already mentioned that the last glacial maximum was around 26 and a half thousand years ago and deglaciation started around 19,000 years ago um, in the Northern Hemisphere, where we are. Southern so that's, Hemisphere. That's what's important. 14,500 years. Yeah. Sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but even though it took about 7,000 years for things to get warming up, um, that doesn't mean that all climate change is gradual. Um, which, if it were so. 7,000 years is like a good amount of time to adjust to things. Um, like from I mean, generation for, to generation. Yeah, I was going to say not for like a person. They're going to be dead. Well, no. Right. <laughs> I'm so, helping. No, I'm, what, I'm, what I'm saying is the climate, if climate change, if it's taking 7,000 years to get from a glacial maximum to deglaciation to start happening Mm -hmm. that is a gradual enough change that a community can adjust Mm -hmm. slowly over time and it doesn't have a sudden impact on them um but that's not the case for all climate change some of it is sudden and perhaps the most stark example of sudden-ish climate change is a period called the younger dryas which side note the first time i heard this term was from our professor in undergrad, whose accent made me think it was actually called the Younger Dryers. Yep. (laughs) Yep. So, figured that one out later. Um, (laughs) But, so, per the um, United States National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the NOAA. NOAA. The one, NOAA, the ones that put out that, no, actually, mermaids aren't real, notice. Yeah. A few years ago. I do love them for doing that. (laughs) But, (laughs) <laughs> so partway through this transition, um, so the transition being from uh, glacial maximum, uh, temperatures in the northern hemisphere suddenly return to near glacial conditions. This Ooh. near glacier, glacial period is called the Younger Dryas, named after a flower, Dryas octopetala, that grows in cold conditions and that became common in Europe during this time. I bet I know what that flower looks like. I bet it has eight petals. It does. It's, it's, it's rather pretty. It's a pretty little white flower. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would assume that we know that it's common because of... Pollen um, everywhere. Yep. The pollen is everywhere. So the end of the Younger Dryas, about 11,500 years ago, was also abrupt. In Greenland, temperatures rose 10 degrees centigrade, 
So 18 degrees Fahrenheit in a decade. Yeah. So that's like the average seasonal temperature. The average temperature temperature went up 18 degrees Fahrenheit within 10 years. So like if you're used to having 70 degrees in spring, you'd get 88 degrees, which that's... And so more importantly, if you are like a plant... Yeah, (laughs) that too. ...that is being grown to feed people... And you are used to your growing season starting at point A and ending at point B, but the weather starts at point B and ends up at point D, you're not growing anymore. No, you did. So that's that's what I'm like what I'm saying in contrast to like taking seven thousand years. Mm-hmm. Ten years to go up eighteen degrees Fahrenheit is bonkers. So yet again, the impact on humans was far-reaching, and with warmer, wetter climates came more resources and larger, more expansive settlements. Some, There are some theories around like the rise of agriculture in mm-hmm. Mesopotamia that associate agriculture as coming along, like sort of being aided by the, younger, like, the end of the Younger Dryas, mm-hmm. where it was easier to move further. It was easier... It was sort of the learning curve may have been less steep because it was just easier to do this, but it is a theory. Yeah. Nothing more than that. On the African continent, things looked very different at this point than they have for the past few thousand years. So the monsoon winds, which now are on largely on the South Asian subcontinent and sort of over a little bit to Oman, um, expanded northward and westward into the Sahara. And what is today the largest desert in the world was a balmy green steppe. Can you imagine? No, I can't. <laughs> so at this point, at this point, the Sahara was a steppe and the Sahel, which Anna learned about last week, Shh. is <laughs> the, the Sahel became a savanna. Uh-huh. So the... Like everything went up several degrees in latitude. And so it was a much more temperate climate. Right. And um, so in this balmy green steppe, um, well, what was it? We had our first indications that this was a balmy green steppe at one point um, were petroglyphs that were found throughout the region in like rock shelters and, and things yeah. that show that show people. Oh, uh, if you've seen The English Patient or you've read The English Patient, you have the cave of swimmers. And so you have like these uh, petroglyphs of people swimming, people like engaging with water. In the Sahara. It's a very evocative Lodge. image. Um, but these petroglyphs also show humans interacting with goats and buffalo. And these goats and buffalo researchers have found evidence of domestication, which is great. Mm-hmm. And things were going great. It was all coming up. Sahara until (laughs) something happened in a short window of time around 5,000 years. So uh, 5,000 years ago. Okay. So in a short window of time, about 5,000 years ago, the plants disappeared and the Sahara became a desert just like flipped, but which makes sense. It makes sense if like something becomes, because there comes a point after which the plants just can't grow anymore and then they all die. Yeah. And so that wouldn't happen quickly. I mean, yeah. On, and the, so the scale, yeah, yeah, it just like more or less ge- geologically speaking, a switch flipped, yeah, and everything died. Where, it, yeah, it was no longer, and so when the when it became desert, it was no longer able to sustain the population of herders who had lived there for millennia at this point. Like they had been there for a couple thousand years, like figuring it out. Anna, tell me about this. I will. So, marine sediment records from off the western coast of Africa, indicate an abrupt decrease in Saharan vegetation around 5,000 years ago. The scientists who generated these records measured the terrigenous flux. That's... Right. That's my band name. That is terrigenous flux. That's like ground-generated... Change. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But also my band name. Ground-generated terrigenous flux. the way that this article synonyms it... This is also from Noah. Oh, Okay. So the way that Noah creates a synonym for this is dust, <laughs> terrigenous flux, or 
dust that is transported off yeah. of Africa into the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah, no, it's amazing. I just love the idea of dust being called terrigenous flux, and that's what I'm going to start calling what I clean up around my house when I vacuum. This dust variable, how much dust is blown off the coast of Africa into the ocean, is inversely related to the amount of vegetation, which makes total sense. The more vegetation yeah. there is, the less erosion and the less dust there's going to be. Keeps and the dust down. Yeah, keeps the dust down. Prior to 5,000 years ago, vegetation was more extensive in northern Africa and there was little loss of sediment from the land. The reverse is true after 5,000 years ago. Scientists observed a similar abrupt change in rainfall proxies, a.k.a. dust, preserved in sediment cores from the Gulf of Aden off eastern Africa. Slow variations in the Earth's orbit... It's not dust. Hmm? Rainfall pro... Okay, dirt. Yeah, sediment is laid down by either alluvial or colluvial action, which can be basically the accumulation well, of dust i don't right but like that is so what's happening in the like on the off the west coast is like aeolian dust right so it's like windborne so it's what's blown off the continent versus what's washed off the continent okay well dust versus wet dust no it's an important distinction <laughs> slow i think it is <laughs> i agree i agree because there's still rainfall i i'm just uh, giving you a hard time Slow variations in the Earth's orbit caused a gradual decrease in summer solar radiation in the tropics from the early to the mid-Holocene, which is the period that we're in now. This decreased the amount of summer monsoon rainfall in Africa and other parts of the tropics. Scientists, hypothes Scientists hypothesized that as monsoon precipitation gradually decreased, at some point conditions became too dry for plants. <laughs> so dry. And a rapid transition to dusty desert conditions resulted. In fact, similar abrupt changes are not commonly observed in paleoclimate records from parts of Africa that did not experience large-scale vegetation shifts. So people were around at this point. And so we can... <laughs> no, hang on. I'm getting somewhere. People were around at this point. This was, this was when, you know, these, these continents were inhabited by people. And so why is this funny? Because we're like 40 minutes into the episode and you're like, so people... Well, are in places. <laughs> well, so we're talking about climate change and we can quantify certain aspects of, of climate change using isotopes or, you know, sediment cores or things like that and just look at the environmental stuff. But the, the whole point and the whole in reason why we're interested in climate change is because it affects populations of people. And so we also, as archaeologists, can quantify populations adaptations to climate change by looking at the correspondence between this paleoclimate record and what's happening in the associated archaeological records. So, uh, okay. for example, in an article in the journal Nature from May 2019, the otter, uh, the otters, the otters that wrote yeah. this article, they're oh, really no. they're really cute with their little typewriters. Oh boy. No, the authors set out to clarify the extent to which evidence of local anthropic responses, so people doing things, can be generalized to large-scale trends. Okay, so translation, can we match records of climate shift to corresponding declines in human populations? From the article again, we achieve this by integrating archaeological radiocarbon data and and paleoclimatic time series to show that population decline occurred coeval with the transition to the initial mid-Holocene across South America. Translation. Yes, we can do that, and we did do that. From the article again, through the analysis of radiocarbon dates with Monte Carlo methods. What? I, yep. We find multiple sustained phases of downturn associated with periods of high climatic variability. Translation, turns out when the climate gets really variable, human populations are affected, often adversely. So, like, there, yes, we can take the archaeological yep. record, look for evidence of population decline, like they did in that Neanderthal article, for example, and we can match that to the weather condition, or, sorry, the climate conditions that were happening at that time and see how those two systems interact. Yeah, yeah, and so in the example you just gave us, we introduce the human aspect of it, like being able to look at the archaeological record. Now, we're going to go to my old stomping ground and introduce the historical record. We have some evidence that climate change contributed to the fall of the Akkadian Empire. What? The first, yeah, the first 
I guess, recognized empire in the world. So a few centuries before the events of our or never going to believe this episode <laughs> from a couple months ago. Still very um, proud Sar- of you for that. I know, right? <laughs> Me too. Sargon of Akkad, the original one, not that white nationalist who got kicked off YouTube. Uh, <laughs> this is like, this is the hill I will die on. Um, he established not a that military- one. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, really. <laughs> Hashtag not all Sargons. True. <laughs> Sargon of Akkad established a military, the real one, not Carl Benjamin, um, established a military and administrative force that pushed into the lands around Akkad, which is a city not yet found by archaeologists, but thought to be somewhere in the Tigris plain between Baghdad and Samara. So um, Sargon's heirs kept that empire going strong for about 150 years. It's not bad. Until suddenly, according to this guy who's like a geographer, he's not. So (laughs) it's Mm. a good article, but it's so you have people who are coming at this from like a more geological bent are like, yes, obviously it's this. But people coming at it from a more archaeological bent are like, so he the authors that we're going to be talking about here over the next couple of minutes um, are on one. So (laughs) the Akkadian Empire did implode. So it, it did implode. They had a good run, um, but it did collapse. And there were um, there were periods of migration and relocation and conflict. So a lot. Of, and out of that conflict was born, um, you know, the or three period, the early dynastic period, the or three period. And then like having those city states where they were sort of warring and trading off sort of relatively like a a larger share of power and influence in the region. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there is, um, there is a text called the curse of Akkad, which is a little on the nose. Um, And it describes a, it describes what's going on in this period at the end of the Akkadian empire. The large arable tracts yielded no grain. The inundated fields yielded no fish. The irrigated orchards yielded no syrup or wine. The thick clouds did not rain. So that sounds uncool. Sounds bad. Um, Yeah, it sounds pretty bad. And what happened? Well, science um, piped up. Hello, science? Yeah. In an article published in 2000 in the journal Geology. (laughs) It's um, It's in all caps. Geology. Yeah, because it's just like, okay. <laughs> um, so the article's title is Climate Change and the Collapse of the Acadian Empire, Evidence from the Deep Sea, which I'm sure has come up in some like ancient alien type Google searches because they're like, <sighs> the fish people? Let's not. The f- <laughs> it's not. So um, I'm going to, I remember reading this in our geoarchaeology class uh-huh. and being like, what? <laughs> uh, and so I found it and I read it again and was like, what? <laughs> okay. So, um, so <clears throat> we document Holocene changes in regional aridity using mineralogic and geochemical analyses of a marine sediment core from the Gulf of Oman, which is directly downwind of Mesopotamian dust source areas and archaeological sites. Our results document a very abrupt increase in aeolian dust and Mesopotamian aridity um, and accelerator mass spectrometer uh, radiocarbon dated to around yeah. 2000 BC. Yeah, it's 4,000 ish <laughs> years ago. Woof. Um, yeah, so around 2000 ish BC, which was around the fall of the Akkadian Empire, uh-huh. um, and which persisted for around 300 years. They also did isotope analyses uh, to confirm that the observed increase in mineral dust was derived from Mesopotamian source areas. Right, so they could actually match the dust to its, like, source, yeah, source because, dirt. Yeah, because dirt everywhere has a, a mineral specific sign. It has a signature mm-hmm. of the, the ratios of one type of isotope to another. Mm-hmm. So... That's how you can, in my undergrad thesis, that's how I sourced ceramics because I could find where the clay came from. Right. This is the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but just rather than the, that, rather than that clay ending up in a pot, that clay ended up at the bottom of the ocean. Right. So 
geochemical correlation of volcanic ash shards between the archaeological site and marine sediment record establishes a direct temporal link between Mesopotamian aridification and social collapse, implicating a sudden shift to more arid conditions as a key factor contributing to the collapse of the Akkadian Empire. That is very cool. And so it's very cool, but it is, like, as you said with... Um, talking about the demise of the Neanderthals, it's more nuanced than that. Yeah. Um, because not, uh, not only are you dealing with the possibility of increased aridification and maybe there are droughts um, and droughts lead to famine, you also have a very, like, the first empire and many of them that follow, it's very top-heavy in terms of yeah. um, how they're run and also... Um, having like large scale agricultural production, you have irrigation, you could, they, if they weren't rotating their crops, if they were, if the soil was hypersalinizing because they yeah, it's weren't, not, so that lots it's of not just environmental change. Yeah. People yeah. are, are impacting their environment by doing things to it, which may have sort of been in a, f- a feedback loop with the existing changes. Right. And also people are doing things to each other that are exacerbated by the natural forces. Yeah. So by having conflict with other, other regions, by having, um, other, like, there are more like societal and intersocietal factors. So the geologists came in and they're like, we fixed it. We solved it. We know what happened. Mm. Um, but like the archaeologists are like, well, okay, but, and so it's, it's something that is really helpful information because they had a good thing going and then and something happened. Yeah. So, so far today, we've talked a lot about human responses to natural climate change, but what about explicitly anthropogenic climate change? I said anthropogenic. Yes, you did. I wasn't going to say anything. Anthropogenic and the holograms. <laughs> <laughs> um, anthropogenic. What about explicitly anthropogenic climate change? That's probably why people are listening to us today, after all. Yeah, and so that's um, that's created by people, anthropogenic. Yeah. Yeah, so before we get to global warming caused by people, let's take a quick dark detour to an instance of global cooling caused by people. A few months ago on on an episode of Old News, uh, we covered a story that made headlines worldwide about a study conducted by University College London that indicated the arrival of Europeans and subsequent genocide of indigenous populations in the Americas was so massive that it literally made the Earth's temperature drop. Um, according to an article in The Guardian, the quote, the drop in temperature during this period is known as the Little Ice Age, a time when the River Thames in London would regularly freeze over, snowstorms were common in Portugal, and disrupted agriculture caused famines in several European countries. Yeah, so here is the abstract from that UCL uh, paper. Human impacts prior to the Industrial Revolution are not well constrained. We investigate whether the decline in global atmospheric carbon dioxide concentration by 7 to 10 parts per million in the late 1500s and early 1600s, which globally lowered surface air temperatures by 0.15 degrees Celsius, were generated by natural forcing or were a result of the large-scale depopulation of the Americas after European arrival, subsequent land use change, and secondary succession. That is a very long sentence. We show that the global carbon budget of the 1500s cannot be balanced until large-scale vegetation regeneration in the Americas is included. The great dying of the indigenous peoples of the Americas, woof, it resulted yeah. in a human-driven global impact on the Earth system in the two centuries prior to the Industrial Revolution. And just just to unpack that a little bit, um, it's not as though all those people dying and no longer like exhaling carbon yeah. dioxide <laughs> is what caused it, or like it's not it their was, body heat or something. Because, yeah. yeah, it's because there had been large-scale agricultural practices happening on the continents of North and South America. So there were people living there that had changed their environment. So these people weren't just like part of the natural landscape. Like these are people that had had agency on the landscape. Yeah. Like they, yeah, they had affected the landscape and they had, when they all died, when 90% of the population on in the Americas died, that agricultural system buckled and And trees came back. 
And so by having things grow over, that is what caused the um, CO2 concentration to drop. Right. Because all those trees. And that is like, just like take a second. It made weather. It it made it snow in Portugal. Yeah. Because half of the world, the people on it died. Like that is... That is, like, way too much to comprehend. Yeah, I don't have an adjective for that. That is dot, dot, dot. I don't know. But, yeah, we actually, in that episode of Old News, we had a whole section about sort of climate-driven. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) climate-driven stories. Um, So a lot of them involved climate change, including um, the appearance of hunger stones in Central Europe. So this was um, basically Europe was in the middle of this big, long drought, and the rivers in, some of them were in the Czech Republic, but um, the rivers lowered enough so that people could see these inscriptions written on like big boulders in the river. And it was inscriptions from the last time that the rivers had run that low. And there had been massive famines associated with those droughts. And so basically the stones inscription said things like, when you see me weep, as in like when you see the writing on this stone, you know, be worried because drought is coming yeah. and and hunger is coming. So there was that. There was uh, some stories from the UK about archaeological discoveries uh, made because in aerial photographs you could see the the different shapes of buried ancient stone structures because the grass was drying out differently over the stone versus where it wasn't over the stone. So you saw these outlines of um, different uh, what's the word? I don't know. Different structures. Um, so yeah. The, it's not a new thing that's happening, this like global climate change. It's just that right now it's happening faster and things are worse than it has been in the past. Yeah. And um, so we, there's like an increasing um, amount of attention paid to these narratives of um, climate change refugees. And so talking about how, uh, like what I was saying about the end of, the Akkadian Empire, how it wasn't just climatic. It was also, if you have a badly designed, if you, if you have a, a system of governance and a system of like agricultural, like really exploitation of the land and the people who are producing things, like that's not really sustainable. And so having these unsustainable practices affect some populations faster than others. And so those are things that are happening now too. And so um, one of the regions that there's a lot of discussion around climate change refugees is from the Sahel uh, because it is becoming more and more arid and it is becoming harder and harder for people to live there. And also it is a site, the, 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 the countries that are in the Sahel are, still being affected adversely by the um, the residues of imperialism and colonialism. And so you have these sort of um, governmental structures that what like sort of political and social structures that are not sustainable. And so when you add something like a um, a drought onto it, or if you add something like long term, climate change like Mm long-term weather becoming climate change like it exacerbates everything um and so you have folks who are refugee who are climate refugees coming from the Sahel up into like the Maghreb in like North Africa and then coming into Europe and this is one of the regions that a lot of people spend a lot of time thinking about there being either an immigration problem or a refugee crisis. Um, But another one of these places that is very compelling in the media is back in island Southeast Asia. Um, Symmetry. Because, yeah, because, right? Uh, I'm I'm really enjoying this episode. Um, In a real bummer. Yeah, well, Um, it is you. So, (laughs) yes. Um, So just like how things don't just affect Europe, they also affect the rest of the world. Uh, um, So with sea levels rising because the, the 
deglaciation is happening more and more rapidly, um, sea level rising, like rising sea levels are affecting um, island nations. So small nations in the Pacific um, that are being described as climate refugees. And um, it's very compelling in the media to be like, oh, look what we're doing. Like these poor people, like these poor, like, villagers on islands they just like this is the only life they know and like that like which gets a lot of clicks and um but as two australian anthropologists explained in their paper the first climate refugees contesting global narratives of climate change in tuvalu um they suggest that perhaps we should be listening to these so-called refugees whose stories we find so moving um and the um, I'm going to read the abstract and then I'm going to kind of, I'm going to read a quote from one of the folks that they that they speak to, that they hear from. Um, climate change effects such as sea level rise are almost certain. What these outcomes mean for different populations, however, is far less certain. Climate change is both a narrative and a material phenomenon. In so being, understanding climate change requires broad conceptualizations that incorporate multiple voices and recognize the agency of vulnerable populations. In climate change discourse, climate mobility is often characterized as the production of, quote, refugees, end quote, with a tendency to discount long histories of ordinary mobility among affected populations. The case of Tuvalu in the Pacific juxtaposes migration as everyday practice with climate refugee narratives. This climate-exposed population is being problematically positioned to speak for an entire planet under threat. Um, Tuvaluans are being used as the immediate evidence of displacement that the climate change crisis narrative seems to require. Those identified as imminent climate refugees are being held up like ventriloquists to present a particular, in this case Western, quote, crisis of nature, end quote. Yet Tuvaluan conceptions of climate challenges and, and climate challenges and mobility practices show that more inclusive sets of concepts and tools are needed to equitably and effectively approach and characterize population mobility, which is not something that I've heard anyone really talk about when right. you talk about climate change and the imminent effect of climate change and even like talking about people who are the most affected but the least um, complicit in mm -hmm. climate change. Um, and so here is a, um, a scholar and activist from Papua New Guinea named Ursula Rakova. Um, she's from the uh, Carteret Islands. Um, she writes about people of her island's response to the climate refugee discourse and the challenge of rising sea levels in terms of, quote, sailing the waves on our own, end quote. And she says, for some time now, Carteret Islanders have made eye-catching headlines, going, going, Papua New Guinea atoll sinking fast. Academics have, does, have dubbed us amongst the world's first environmental refugees, and journalists put us on the front line of climate change. We do not need labels, but action. Tired of empty promises, the Carteret's Council of Elders formed a nonprofit association in late 2006 to organize the voluntary relocation of most of the Carteret's population of 3,300. The association was named Tulele Paisa, which means sailing the waves on our own. This name choice reflects the elders' desire to see Carteret Islanders remain strong and self-reliant, not becoming dependent on food handouts for their survival. And so the, these, two, um, these two anthropologists pull... So the paper is really cool, and I'll put it up in the show notes, because it captures a lot of um, folks both from Tuvalu and from other, um, other nations in the region... Um, mm -hmm. that are being immediately and negatively impacted by rising sea levels. Um, but they're talking about how they see it and how they're experiencing it. And this is a, um, and these are states and communities that um, have different, uh, have a different relationship with mobility and perhaps being in part of like, um, migrant communities in Australia or elsewhere where their identity as Tuvaluan or wherever they're from is not based solely on being on this land. And they have 
pretty great ideas about what they need to like survive, like as like survive in terms of their identity, survive in terms of their icon uh, economies, and just sort of a, a a more holistic approach to what sort of survival you would, looks you would, like. You would think that these would be the people that we'd want to listen to about this particular issue, but. Yeah. And so a lot of a lot of what folks are saying is having this this um, need for this this need to define and speak of their culture, identity and sort of self-determination um, and how to maintain that rather than becoming these sort of like what Ursula Rakova was saying about not wanting handouts like they don't want. They don't want like charity. Not like, yeah, yeah. And so, like, by taking a very fatalistic approach to um, what is happening, uh, which that's what the media and what perhaps international aid organizations and things, what that's what they're taking me like, oh no. But like, folks are saying, well, you know, this is this is my home, this is my life, this is my family, this is my future, this is my identity. Like, maybe. You should ask me what I think. Um, and so I'm going to include this because it's it's really insightful. Yeah, it looks and really cool. If, yeah, so if you read that and then when you start reading about, like when you start reading articles about folks in other places and what's happening to people in other places, kind of take that, um, take that line of thinking with you of like, yeah. what are you speaking for people? Are you speaking to people? Like, what is the point of this? Yeah, for sure. So, Anna. Yes. What is the point of all this? Oh, God. Well, I mean, ultimately, we can learn about sort of the cyclical nature of climate change. Not cyclical in, this, in the sense that we can predict when it's going to happen, but the fact that it has happened before and we can see the implications on populations of humans. And we can realize that in this world of industrialized nations and pollution, we are affecting our environment far more than any of those populations have in the past. And so it's a real crisis. It's a real thing to be aware of that climate change is happening. It's happening because it happens on this planet naturally, but it's also being accelerated by the actions of human populations. And there are things that we could do to mitigate those effects. And, and we need to be aware of those things, whether it's something as small as, you know, trying to reduce your own intake of, of plastics and try to reduce pollution or, I don't know, planting some trees. My point is that that this this really is a thing that is happening. I it, feel like all of my suggestions will get cut out. It, are they like sit in a corner and cry? Like what? No, no, they're like smash the eat state. Jeff Bezos. Oh yeah. Well, he would taste awful. But okay, so I was. I don't know. I I guess I thought that there would be sort of a. There's something kind of comforting that the world has ended many times. There have been previous Earths. There have been alternate Earths, but also like. Oh man, that's not that's not that's still a bummer. See, this yeah, no, there's no way like, that this shakes out that it isn't a bummer. We have to we have yeah. to be aware of that well, reality. But yeah, we can take a, an approach of of counteracting misinformation and trying yeah. to associate science and facts and empirical evidence with these notions, so that we can point to these things and say, look, this has happened before. It's happening again. This is what happens when climate shifts. And, and this is the, the potential impact on the human population. And we can point to that. And there are people whose minds are not going to change because of, you know, we're not going to be able to convince some people. But the point is that we are making an effort to bring people accurate information. And hopefully, listeners, you will also pass this information on and continue to educate yourselves about the history of global climate change and the future of climate change and, and what can be done to mitigate it. Yeah. Okay. Well. I mean, there's no, there's no happy, funny, bouncy ending on this one, but next time. Okay. No guarantees. But okay, yeah, no guarantees. I mean, but thanks for listening. Yes, I, I thank hope, you. I hope you got your your mind blown. Maybe 
I, I mean, I definitely learned a couple things and I helped write the script. Yeah. So, yeah, you know. Yeah. So um, thank you, listeners. We will be back in your ears soon with new episodes, which, as usual, you can find on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Google Play, and wherever else you get your pods. And uh, you can help us out by leaving reviews and stars at all those places. Yes, Maybe please. don't tell people we're a bummer. We're only a bummer we're sometimes. A bummer. Sometimes we talk about doggies and other only fun stuff. Only when Amber writes the script. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, reviews, especially on Apple Podcasts, are super helpful to us. They help people find us, and it's how Apple knows we exist. And um, you can find us also on Facebook at The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we are at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. And all of that comes together on our website, thedirtpod.com. And you can email us at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. And if you, like Andrea, Andrea, at the top of the show, um, support us on Patreon, you get a little, a little something, something. Get a little something extra, extra bonus content every month. We have uh, bonus content, bonus goodies like video content and premium episodes, um, starting at as little as a dollar USD a month at Patreon.com/slash/TheDirtPodcast. Yes, indeed. And or, no, forget- we are the we are now the Terogenous Flux <laughs> cast. Welcome to the hello and welcome to the Terogenous Flux. <laughs> well goodbye okay (laughs) bye chris webster here thanks for listening and sharing this episode across your socials it really helps us get the word out if you don't know how to share from your podcast app just look for a share icon on apple devices it's usually a box with a little arrow coming out of it something like that and share it across your socials right from in the app if you'd like to support us a little more and get some extras in the process then head over to arcpodnet.com members for some options that's arcpodnet.com members to support archaeological education and outreach